What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Join the Journey podcast, where we have engaging conversations about organ tissue donation, transplants, and organ health. On today's podcast episode, I'm very excited to welcome a special guest from Louisiana as we talk about the social worker's role in the organ donation and transplant setting, mental health, and much more. All of that starts right here, right now, on the Join the Journey podcast. All right, everyone, on today's interview for the Join the Journey podcast, I am very excited to welcome Ms. Sarah Blakemore from the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, otherwise known as LOPA. Before our interview today, y'all, I sat down and, and talked with Ms. Blakemore over the phone, and I can say that y'all are truly in for a treat. She has so much insight and knowledge, and I am very excited to have her on the podcast, and I do not want to take any more time away from her because, like I said, we are truly in for a treat. So, Ms. Blakemore, if you'll do me a favor and give a quick introduction of who you are and what you're about, and we'll get this thing started. Absolutely. So, my name is Sarah Blakemore, and I am a social worker in Louisiana. I'm a licensed master social worker, and currently I work at LOPA as a family advocate. So, my primary role is that I approach families for donation. So when families have a loved one who is a candidate for organ donation, um, meaning they have sustained a non-survivable injury um, or they are declared brain dead, I am the one who um, speaks to those families about their opportunities for organ, tissue, and eye donation. Okay, before we go too far in on this interview, I, I just want to pause real fast and hear from you and learn why you decided to choose this career path in social work and specifically what you're doing versus maybe a career path in child life, a career path in public health or a career path in social work, but maybe not in organ transplant and donation. Was this something that you had a personal life event that led you to want to do this? Did you just happen to stumble upon it and here you are now? What exactly led you to want to do your job that you're doing right now as a social worker at LOPA? Yeah. So when I kind of figured out, I kind of figured out pretty young that I wanted to be a social worker without knowing what that meant. <laughs> I remember I was in high school and there was this class and we watched this, you know, video one day about this um, young woman who was homeless and how she had a social worker impact her life. And I was like, I just want to be a social worker. I want to help people without knowing the scope of what social work does. And I actually got very lucky when I got to school um, I went to LSU for my undergraduate in sociology and psychology um, with the full intention of going and getting my master's from LSU as well. And I am one of those lucky people who decided they wanted to do something and it worked out <laughs> when you learn more about it. So I have a family connection to donation. Um, when I was younger, my uh, four-year-old brother, uh, his name is Dougie Blakemore. He ended up um, dying from, he was declared brain dead after a, um, a bad car accident, an accident that happened in our neighborhood. And he, my mother is a nurse and she actually approached the hospital staff about wanting him to be an organ donor and it ended up working out. And so I always knew that, but I wasn't fully aware of LOPA until we, years later when I was in college, 
you know, working on becoming a social worker, I found out that we were going to meet my brother's liver recipient and Lopa actually came to that meeting. And so I met Lopa and I met a couple people, Kirsten Heinz, who does our podcast with us at work. Um, and Sally who has, you know, passed now, but she was a uh, family service coordinator. And I immediately was like, this is what I want to do. I want to work. I want to help other families and I want to get my degree in social work. And I want to work on the donation side in that aspect. So I wanted to bring the skills I learned in grad school into the donation side. Wow. So it sounds like that what led you ultimately to pursue social work as a career was a combination between a personal experience that you had in losing your brother at such a young age, your brother being an organ donor, and also the career field that you chose to go into as far as educationally speaking when you went to LSU. And something I just kind of want to focus on for a second is the fact that those two things in and of themselves, I think, separate you and a lot of people in the OPO world and what you're doing, because I do, I think it takes a, a special level of fortitude, a level of determination and a level of grit to go through this rather traumatic experience of losing a family member, let alone a, a younger brother or a younger sibling, and be able to to go through that process and come out the other side of it and almost in this post-traumatic growth, if you will, and what you're doing now. And I do, I really want to commend you for doing that because I, I do not know how I would react in that circumstance. And I don't know if I would be able to come out the other side the way that you did. Fast forwarding to now, now that you have come out of that season of losing your brother, you have now gotten your MSW. You are now licensed in the state of Louisiana to practice as a social worker. You're working at LOPA. I'm really interested to hear from you now that you are in your career is what is one of the biggest challenges that you have as a social worker on a day-to-day -day basis that those of us on the outside looking in, we, we might know of an organization, right? We might know what an organ procurement organization is and the work that they do, but there's a difference between knowing of an individual and knowing of an organization and actually understanding and hearing firsthand from the people who are in those positions of what their challenges are. And so that's the question I want to pose to you is what is one of the biggest challenges that you face on a day-to-day -day basis in your job that for those of us on the outside looking in, we might not be aware of, but that you go into work every day knowing is on your plate. Yeah, that's like a really great, great question because, you know, Will and I, we talk on the side about, you know, what social work means in this field and really it's not a super structured, there's not organ donation social workers, you know, so it's, you kind of, I kind of started in this knowing that I'm going to have to kind of make my own, what does being a social worker at Lopa, at Lopa mean? And um, I think that there's a lot of people who are drawn to the organ donation side who are social workers, because like you mentioned, a lot of in my experience, a lot of my friends who are social workers, not only do they want to help, but they've got, there's something that there's a reason they want to help people. It's either they have an experience in their life that 
you know, they were helped and now they want to help. But to be a social worker in the organ donation side, I kind of had to make my own way in that. And I kind of had to use the skills that I learned in grad school and then in my job before this um, to develop what it means to respond to families in crisis, to respond to families in acute grief stages. Because when I meet with family, they're grieving, but it's so acute that it's a different presentation of grief. It's not something that we talk a lot about yet in the field. So I knew in grad school that I needed to focus on trauma. I needed to focus on grief and I needed to focus on um, the acuity of both of those together and what it could mean. So I knew that this was going to be something, um, I guess you could call it a little hardcore, especially when it comes to like trauma, but I was always drawn to that. I was always drawn to loss and um, how people handle and cope in those moments of acuity and how that presents for them later on. So I think that's kind of how I forged my way in this was I focused a lot on the trauma and the grief aspects of it. And then it just was brought together when I started becoming a family advocate. And I was like, whoa, these are presenting together and these are ways that I can help. And, you know, you do start to see trends with families. Definitely. And I'm, I'm so fascinated that you mentioned, you know, you kind of had to make your own way in what you were doing. I, I can definitely relate to that in grad school. I had some exceptional professors, but in a lot of ways, I had to really just um, own what I wanted to do and be confident in that. I, I would constantly get questions of, what is organ donation and what exactly do you want to do again? And yes. <laughs> I, you find that you actually end up doing more education than you realize. I mean, you're in school to get education, but you're also teaching your cohort about this stuff too. I'm, I'm interested to know, is there any specific, uh, any specific people at LSU um, that kind of saw what you were doing or did you have to really um, kind of pioneer your own way in your, in your program? So I had, I had, we had amazing professors and doctors that taught us at LSU and um, you know, in every class, I would just simply share, like if we had to do papers, if we had to do research, I would say, I'm going to focus in on either trauma or grief. And, you know, I picked internships that reflected that as well. So it wasn't just my professors, it was the internships um, that I chose. Uh, but really the one class that kind of stood out was we had a class with Sherry Smelly, who still is at LSU and she teaches um, grief and bereavement, death and dying. And she would bring in these guest lecturers of people who experience death and dying, whether it's, you know, their own families or they, them treating family members or not family members, but them treating their clients with death and dying. And one of the families was a, um, the family of an organ donor. So, and they shared their story and I was like, oh my gosh, this is finally it. But when I was in grad school, every research I did, there's nothing about organ donation in the mental health field. There's no, there's, there's a lot about transplant. And I found that, and, you know, there's a lot of transplant social workers who are incredible at what they do, but there was nothing about organ donation. So I had to just 
piece it together and and like you're saying educate my professors about you know this is something i'm interested in i want to do it they they had no idea what i was talking about and and i find that's really kind of the truth for a lot of our communities everyone knows what organ or they know organ donation and they know transplantation or they might know someone who might need a transplant one day but no one knows what goes into the process of organ donation and so it was it was difficult but i think my advice would be if you if you have something that's kind of on the cusp that's not really dedicated in the research yet that's not peer reviewed find similar themes so what i did was once i saw that organ donation is not really going to be covered in this or like how families respond to organ donation what the community thinks about organ donation it's not really covered it's starting to but it's not covered yet find other things like acute loss sudden loss um how siblings respond to the loss of a other sibling find something that could be translated into the work that you want to do and then one day you do you be the one who goes and conducts the research <laughs> and you be the trailblazer to connection of what mental health and mental health professionals can do and further expand it because i think social work that's why i wanted to get into it i love how um deep the field is and how it really goes into every different discipline and so i think there's so much opportunity in donation and social work that we can just i i mean it wasn't even just direct practice classes for me it was community classes that macro social work i was like oh my gosh like we need social workers who are lobbying for the rights of you know our organ donors and so there's so much to be done there there's a ton to be done i i know that i wrote a couple papers on um some some of that mental health aspect they're talking about in grad school and like you i had a lot of really great professors that they might not have known a lot about organ transplant and donation but they were willing to get behind me and encourage me to do that research um something that something else i want yeah. to talk about a little bit is um kind of your experience thus far at lopa and and kind of the the uniqueness of going from you know you're you're this student in grad school to all of a sudden now you're it like you're the one doing this and you're kind of thrown in there and kind of what that experience is like translating from the school to the professional field and kind of what what some of the joys are of your job that's a great question and i think every person who finishes school and goes into whatever field you're in you're you're like what am i doing do i know what i'm doing it, it's scary but you know i had a job before so i worked at milestones mental health in the new orleans area with youth and um so i worked a little bit before and i had a caseload with kids and um but when i got to lopa which was really what i wanted to do um my experience is that the opo field is very compassionate it's the best way to describe it when they have someone who works in the opo especially at lopa you have to know that you love what you're going to do that you you fight for the mission because when you work for a not for profit they're mission based so you have to fully believe in the mission and you have to you know with your own values and your own morals and ethics you have to fit into the mission as well 
And so I knew that this was going to be a mission that I was already on board with, but we had a lot of training. So when I started at Lopa, I was in orientation for almost six months to learn how to do this job because it's so niche and it's so specific. And it's something that I think there's like around 20 family advocates in Louisiana who do what I do. And probably in the world, there's like less than a thousand family advocates in the, in the country who do, who approach families as their job. So it's incredibly niche, which means the training that went into it was so specific. And especially with the medical terminology, I didn't take any medical terminology, social work classes, um, which hindsight, man, I should have, because <laughs> I didn't know the basics. So I had to learn so many things that before I even approached a family, I had to learn what even makes a patient a candidate for organ donation or what makes a patient not a candidate for donation. So I had so much to learn and they took it piece by piece. And I had amazing preceptors, amazing, you know, the hierarchy of the clinical team at LOPA is everyone is there to to support the mission. And so there's so much education that goes on continuously and so much support. Um, it was definitely exhausting, but it was amazing. And I, I mean, I, I was never on my own. I was never, all right, here's a list of things. Now go do the job. <laughs> it, it took a lot of practice and training, but once I got to the approach part, that part went a little bit faster for me. I found that I was able to connect. I, it's the positive, authentic self-regard. You know, you always go into a family Anytime you're meeting with a client, with a patient's family, you always get, go in with number one, positivity, even though that sounds glib in the moment, you want to be, you don't want to be, you know, super down when you walk in that room, you want to be someone who's there to positively advocate for them. And you also just want to be yourself because people know when you're not being authentic, that's just the truth of it. You know, being in social work, you're not feeling genuine they're not going to feel it either. So that part was a little bit, I was prepared for that part a little bit better than the medical stuff. <laughs> I think what you just mentioned there about medical terminology is so important. And I agree that it unfortunately isn't something that social work in general focuses enough on. Even if you aren't a social worker in a medical setting or you're in a different career other than social work, I still think having a basic understanding of medical terminology is important to have just for life in general. All things considered, I think it's people like you, it's people like me, it's folks out there who are going through these challenging medical situations that have a very unique view of the medical setting. There is, however, a difference between what you see as a patient or donor family and what goes on behind the scenes. You may have a perspective of what goes on, but I've found that there are specific parts of the medical field that you don't see unless you yourself are on the other side. With you being someone who has been on both sides of donation, that of a donor family and now a family advocate, I'm interested to know what challenges you have seen that donor families face that you didn't realize was such a challenge until you yourself were the one making the approach for donation. I think for me it was I knew that I was going to be speaking with families whose loved ones were acutely dying. I knew that, but knowing what that's like in a hospital, in a critical care setting are two different things. 
you know, when we talk about grief, I think a lot of people think of after they think of the funeral and beyond. And I think that's, you know, in our U.S. society, we have such interesting grief culture. It, and I don't, I don't like it necessarily. We're very quick. Let's hurry up and get through this. Hurry up and do a funeral as fast as possible. Do a viewing as fast as possible. And then get food for a month. And then that's it. We don't want to talk about it anymore. We don't want, we don't want to give room past those first couple months to like really feel like to really grieve. And so knowing that, and then going into a hospital critical care setting, there's lots of noises, there's lots of smells, there's lots of distraction. And in our modern medicine, there's not a lot of time and communication that goes on between the hospital staff and the families. They are so bogged down with so many patients and so much to do and so much charting that the communication is decreased. And I know this because I've talked to my coworkers who were nurses for decades and they have said, you know, I think I read this article the other day about how um, doctors spend less than, what was it? Less than five minutes in a patient's room speaking with the patient or the family when they do rounds. And that's not to fault them. They have so much. It's, it's not their personal fault. It's the way that our medicine is created. And so that on top of this quick turnover grief culture that we've got, I didn't realize how many barriers there were going to be to families expressing grief in healthcare settings. And I didn't realize that it was that I had to fit myself into that and give these families space and advocate for timing and communication. I had no idea that I was going to have to advocate to, hey, you know, go after speaking with a family, going to a doctor and saying, I really don't think they understand what you're telling them. I think it, you know, it would be great if we went back in there together. They don't have time. And so it's, it's so you, the empathy I've built for families who are in critical care settings, whose family members are dying, it, you just want to change so much. You want to advocate so much for their, the time and the space that they deserve and the way they express their grief shouldn't be judged. So I think that was what I knew from being taught, you know, the way we grieve is so different and it's so fast paced in the U S but then experiencing it was, I was not prepared to kind of adjust. I think you're, you're spot on there when you talk about, you know, that in, in our society, so much of grief is okay. You know, that you have the process and you just move on and you don't really allow for different people to, you know, different, different folks, you know, they're, they're going to express grief differently. That's just the way they're wired. And, and allowing for that and the fact that you're, you've been able to, to pick up on that and kind of keep that in the back of your mind and what you're doing, I, I think that's really important. Um, something I'm, I'm also really interested to know is from you know, the, the podcast side, I know that's also something that, that y'all do and a lot of what y'all's podcast focuses on is, you know, in the first part, you'll have an interview and in the second part, it'll be, it'll usually be you or someone else talking about some element of grief or some element beyond the interview. And I'm really interested to know what maybe your your favorite topic to cover in that has been. I, I, I personally have my favorite, 
but oh. <laughs> the, 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 every time that part two comes out i'm like all right so something's about to hit hard what's it gonna be today <laughs> um i i just i i love how how y'all y'all always bring something that is it's relevant and it it expands not only just the families but to recipients as well so what is maybe something that you have found to be the most true for for the transplant community or just even maybe your favorite topic that you covered in that podcast yeah so so like wills is saying um on our podcast at lope it's called the gifted life podcast so we focus a lot on education about organ donation tissue eye donation and transplantation so we do a lot of education and then um you know because I, I was not the original host. We had our lovely Sally who has um, since passed. She's amazing. And she was a counselor. And they were like, we need to bring something more than just education. We need to talk about mental health because it's so pertinent. Like all we're, you know, and it's becoming less taboo. And we're so, you know, I'm so excited about that. But mental health is becoming just as important as physical health. And so we wanted to bring that aspect in. Let's give little nuggets. Let's have conversations about mental health. So now I do that. We take a moment for mental health and my favorite topic I think I've talked about because it's something I feel really passionately about is um, toxic positivity. I am such a advocate for, I don't believe in positivity fixing your problems. I think that when people say that, I think that it's good to have a positive regard but I think it can go too far for people. I think when you're having a conversation and someone's going through a hard time and you tell them, oh, just be positive, look on the bright side, who does that help? Has that ever helped anyone to look on the bright side when you're going through something hard? You know, I think going from positivity to realistic conversations and empathy, I think that's way more important and that's way more helpful. And when I've had family or friends, or even, you know, when I went through therapy, when my therapist would say, when I would, you know, be going through something difficult and trying to express it, and it's difficult to express when you're going through a hard time, but when they would say, no, this, this is real, this, this must hurt, you feel so validated, and you, you, we just want to be heard, people just want to be heard, they just want to be understood. So I think when I shared, when we talked about positive or toxic positivity, how that actually does more harm than good, that was my favorite. I think that's so important that you just mentioned about toxic positivity. And you talk about, you know, how it can so often do more harm than good. With that in mind, I first want to know a little bit more of exactly what toxic positivity looks like in practice and how transplant recipients, donors, donor families, or really anyone who is going through grief or someone who is helping a person through that grief process go from having toxic positivity to actually having empathy that you talk about and maybe taking it a step further to having some uncomfortable conversations or going into some uncomfortable territory, but nonetheless somewhere where we might need to go when it comes to our own experiences with grief? Yeah, so essentially toxic positivity is the belief that no matter how bad it is, no matter what you're going through, your response should just be, be positive, good vibes only, look on the bright side of things. 
And as we said earlier, that's really not helpful because sometimes positivity isn't the reality. Sometimes what you're going through sucks. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it hurts and you're in pain. And really what this get, what this boils down to is that you're not being truthful to yourself or you're not allowing the person you're listening to to go through a hard time. So you're not acknowledging the difficulty and the pain of somebody's experience because the truth is, is that positivity isn't going to fix your problems. So I think for people, particularly who are going through um, medical crises, who need transplants, let yourself feel upset. And, uh, and if you're the person going through it, let yourself have those down dark days. Darkness isn't a bad thing. Darkness is a reality of our life. Like we all have struggles and we all have days where you don't feel good physically or mentally. Allow yourself to feel that way. Allow yourself to go through it. And if you're someone who's supporting someone who either is waiting for a transplant because that's such a tricky thing mentally. It's so tricky. And we hear that from a lot of transplant recipients, the, um, the guilt almost of waiting and wishing and wanting that transplant because they know the reality is to get that transplant, someone has to die. So that's so tricky mentally. So if you're supporting someone who's going through that, allow them to express the darkness. Allow, give them the space to be there. And I, I mean, I think the response is this. It's as simple as that really sucks. I'm here for you. And then be there for them and then follow it up and listen. And that's how you challenge positive, or that's how you challenge toxic positivity is allowing the space for negativity to be a part of your life. Because negative isn't bad, darkness isn't bad, it's what we go through. So allow yourself that space to just be in that bad place and you will come out of it, that's the beauty of it. A lot of times it feels like you're not gonna come out of it. And you know, when you talk to people who experience anxiety and depression, when they're in those acute symptoms of depression or anxiety, the number one thing you hear is that they feel like they're never gonna come out of it. My kind of feedback for that is to allow yourself to feel that, but remind yourself in the realistic aspect, but I, but I will. I know because I've done it before because I've been through this before and I know that the light will come back. So I think that is realistic instead of, no, everything's okay, everything's fine, don't feel this. Allow yourself to feel it and remind yourself that you're gonna be okay and you will get through it. And so there's your, here's your TED talk for the day, folks. That, that, that's, <laughs> no. um, I, I think that is so true and that rings so true for this. And I know that something else that y'all do at Lopa is those um, those patient family services. And I, I think the fact that y'all bring that perspective, in, or at least you bring that perspective to what y'all do, I, I think that's so great. So for, for, for those of y'all out there that aren't really familiar with LOPA and all the awesome things that they do, uh, we're, we're very blessed to have someone on here that, that knows a little bit about that. Um, so to, to kind of wrap up our interview, Sarah, I wanna kind of highlight a little bit of what exactly LOPA does just beyond the day-to-day -day organ recovery um, and kind of where you see 
LOPA going in the future and where you see yourself um, going forward in your career? Because obviously you, you know a lot about this, you're very passionate about it. And I think it's because of people like you that we are able to make these advances and, and have these mental health conversations. Oh, thank you. So, so what we do at LOPA and actually a lot of OPOs, which is organ procurement organizations. Um, well, first of all, LOPA, when we talk about our families, the first word we use is support. So we give, we give family support in the hospital and we give family support outside of the hospital, regardless of if the patient was able to be an organ donor or not. If we have families who want services after they're out of the hospital, we provide that. So we have a family services department. And what we do is we have um, several programs, but one of them is our traumatic loss support program. So we end over the phone and we follow up with our families. We check on them. We give them resources of um, what other families who have been through something similar, what they experienced a couple months after, how they can better take care of themselves, remind them of those really precious self-care coping mechanisms. And we just check on them and we have, you know, a phone call. How are you? Is there anything you want to talk about? And that specific program lasts for about a year, but that doesn't, we don't end our support. We, that's a year after the patient was an organ donor or the year after we initiated support. We do a year of correspondence for education about grief. The main goal of this started because we wanted to support um, survivors of suicide. And because we have family members who are organ donors from suicide. And so we did that and then we coupled it with trauma because we know that most of our families have experienced either trauma, suicide, overdose. So we provide information on what trauma looks like, what grief looks like, what grief particular to the loss of suicide looks like. And then we just speak with them and we're just there for them. Um, and then after that year, we, um, we still send every year, we send correspondence around the holiday times to let our families know that, you know, we're thinking of them and to thank them for, you know, choosing to give the gift of life. Um, and they take calls 24 seven. If there's a family member who needs anything and they call into Lopa and they say, I'm, you know, I'm having difficulty. I need some, I need some support, or maybe I need a referral into the community. We call them immediately and we let them know like, Hey, what do you need? We give them, you know, a community referral. If it's, they need a therapist or if they need a group, um, a grief group, we have so many across the state that we refer to. And um, we also have one of our, uh, one of my coworkers, Nyla, who is a clinical counselor. She has started, we're going to start doing some grief groups ourselves. So for our families who our donor families, we are going to start traveling amongst the state. That's the major goal is to go provide these grief groups across the state for our families, because it's so particular, the loss that they go through, that the only way to support them is the community. We can support each other. So why not? We have the skills, we have the abilities. Let's continue to do more and foster mental health better in our communities. I think that's awesome how you all are wanting to take what you're currently doing and expand it. You're not just comfortable doing what you're doing. Instead, you're saying, no, we want to be out in these communities providing services before, during, and even after someone receives a transplant or chooses to donate. At the core of this, I think, is the idea that, you know, you want to not just exist as an organization or just exist as a social worker, but that you want to be able to actively promote the well-being of the communities that you're in.
what's called wanting to make an impact. And that's something that I feel like Lopa and you have done and you all only continue to do. So good for you all for answering that call to do more and really make a difference. Well, y'all, today we have been truly blessed to have Miss Blakemore on the podcast. We've covered a lot in our short time together, and I hope that there is something from our conversation today that you can take and apply to your own life journey. As is the case with every podcast episode on the Join the Journey podcast, I like to give some time at the end for each of our guests to give a final message to you, the listeners. This could be a life lesson, an inspirational quote, or really anything that hasn't been said yet. Now it's time for us to do just that. So world, I give you Miss Sarah Blakemore. I think if I could pass anything to our listeners, I think it would be to, you know, it sounds so cheesy, but we all, we all go through something. We, we don't know what our neighbors are going through and everybody has something that they have that has happened to them that they have been a part of that's negative or that's disrupted their life. Um, I think when life gets disrupted, adapt. And that's not easy and it's gonna take a long time. And I think from my experience, you know, I lost my brother when I was younger and that meant something then. And then a couple years, it changed what it meant. And now looking back as an adult and going through that and, you know, now I'm in kind of a different place in my life where I'm, you know, developing my career, thinking about family myself, it's changing its meaning. So I think knowing that disruption will continue to change what it means for you in your life, but that's okay. And to know that you're going to get through it. We, we all do. And to reach out, reach out to those people who support you and really ask for help. Wow, that's so true and inspiring, Sarah. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I hope that anyone out there who is going through challenges in their life journey, specifically around organ health, transplant, or donation, will take your words to heart and really seek the support that they need. If you are listening and you want to connect with LOPA and learn more about the services that they offer, I would encourage you to do so. You can visit them at their website at www.lopa.org. That's www.lopa.org. Or if you want to learn about toxic positivity or anything else around the topics of organ donation and transplant, I would highly recommend you check out Lopa's Gifted Life podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, I want to say a very special thank you to Lopa for helping make this podcast episode possible and for the continuous work that they are doing to make an impact in Louisiana and beyond. I hope you all have an awesome week. And as always, we here at the Join the Journey podcast encourage you to go out and do something this week to make an impact, whether that's making an impact in your family, making an impact in your community, or making an impact in your world. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode of the Join the Journey podcast. The Join the Journey podcast is an Impact America media production and is made possible by the considerable support of our impact partners across the United States and Canada. To learn more about the Join the Journey podcast and the work being done by our impact partners, visit www.impactamericamedia.com.